Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. Happy Thanksgiving. We hope you're enjoying the holiday. Saturday marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of Charles Schultz, the creator of one of the most beloved and famous comic strips, Peanuts. It was in the 1950s that a depressed, insecure kid named Charlie Brown took his place on the newspaper comics pages. Even if you didn't grow up with the Peanuts comic strip, you may recognize this. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. That's from A Charlie Brown Christmas, which was first broadcast in 1965 and has since become an annual TV tradition. The soundtrack from the special is one of the best-selling jazz albums of all time. Charles Schultz died in 2000, one day before his final strip was published. I spoke with him in 1990 on the 40th anniversary of Peanuts. He was in his studio in Santa Rosa, California. There's a, a, a Peanuts from, I forget the year, it's, but it's, it's in the 1950s, where um, I think it's Linus shows uh, Charlie Brown a scar, and he asks Charlie Brown if he has any scars, and Charlie <laughs> Brown says, oh, I have lots of them, but they're all mental. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I think in a way that kind of sums up uh, Charlie Brown's <laughs> Charlie Brown's uh, view of life. You know, the the mental scars. Yeah. Well, did you find any reluctance in newspapers at the time to to take on a subject like depression or mental scars? You know, no, uh, I don't recall anybody ever complaining about that. What um, editors were afraid of in those days, much more than now was the, the mention of personalities in things. There used to be a very wonderful lady who had a program out of Chicago called, she was called Miss Francis, and I used to watch it with my little kids all of the time, and I mentioned her name in, the, in a comic strip one day, and some editor complained. He said, we shouldn't be promoting things like that. Well, now people mention almost everything, and of course, uh, uh, comic strip characters are saying things which they never would have said even uh, 10, 12, 15 years ago. They're, all, they're actually beginning to swear in comic strips now, which I think is a bad policy. Well, the closest you've come to swearing in a comic is probably good grief. I have discovered in my life that good grief and rats will cover almost anything that ever happens to you. How did you start using good grief, which has really become a you know, <laughs> popular part of the vocabulary? It was just a natural... Uh, just a natural thing that I always said. If I was playing golf and I missed a three-foot putt, I might say, oh, good grief, you know. But I've never been one who swore. I, I've never liked um, ugly words. Uh, I have nothing against, you know, I'm, I'm not a, a purist in that way, but I, I, I like words to a certain extent. I'm not well-educated so that I, I'm an expert on them, but I've never cared for uh, any type of ugly language, even uh, words that are not considered uh, swearing words. Do you think of the characters in Peanuts as each representing a different side of your own character? I think there's no doubt about it. I doubt it that I doubt that it would be possible to do something every day with a group group of characters such as I have 
without each one of those characters being a little bit of myself or being a little bit of the creator. I think this is the only way you can do it. Uh, this is why I suppose the characters do change little by little. I try to be consistent in their personalities, but I also think that none of us is ever really consistent in the things that we do and say. We all uh, have our little good points and bad points, and this is what the characters have. Uh, I kind of like the theory that my son Monty has. He called me one day and he says, I've been thinking about your characters, you know, and I've come to the conclusion that Charlie Brown is really the smartest one of the whole group. And uh, I had never even thought much about it, but I, I, have a, I have a feeling that he's right. What part of yourself is Charlie Brown about? Not as much as people like to think. It just makes a good story, of course. I have not been the loser that Charlie Brown has, although I can uh, remember certainly losses in both baseball and golf and hockey that go back uh, 50 years, and I'm still suffering from them. Uh, I think Charlie Brown and I are alike in that we are both fanatics about certain things. I was the same same sort of little kid that Charlie Brown was. I looked forward to the baseball games that we were going to have, and if it was raining, I would have been the kind that would have stood out in the rain and saying, where's everybody going? You know, let's play the game. Come on, let's go. You know, uh, I was uh, just dedicated to things like that, and I suppose it's the dedication to, to drawing that has kept me going these uh, 40 years because I am completely dedicated to what I do. Do you get depressed like Charlie Brown? Oh, yeah, there's no doubt about it. I've been depressed the last few days. <laughs> about I never quite know why. About what? Do you know? Um, for one thing, we are in the midst of doing a wonderful ice show here at my ice arena, and there's something about seeing all the beautiful, uh, bright young people out there performing, and I listen to the music. The music brings back memories to me, and... Uh, I suppose I'm just sensitive to that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think I'm any more sensitive than anyone else is, but they do affect me. And little things like that uh, do tend to make me feel depressed. Although Rita Grimsley Johnson wrote a book about me a couple of years ago called Good Grief, and she mentions in there my depression. And I think the use of the word depression is almost wrong. Uh, I don't know what word would be more suitable, but... I don't think that I am what you would call a, re a really a depressed person by any means. Well, you know, um, when, when a, a, a child is depressed like, um, or, or anxious like Charlie Brown often is, ah. I, I think that adults sometimes don't understand it and think you know, that, that childhood should be a time when kids are more carefree. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was wondering if you were exposed to a lot of that when you were young, of, of adults maybe not understanding your moods and your, your uh. interior self. I don't know about the moods, but I think the word anxiety is much more appropriate than depression. Yeah. I, think I, I think I am a very anxious person. Now, my childhood was, was a good childhood, but there were episodes in our neighborhood where there were some cruel uh, children, a couple of boys, and um, there's one of them. If I ever see him again sometime, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they, they cause me much unhappiness, and I think this is something that adults tend, in, tend to forget. Uh, it's very difficult out there in the playground to survive. Uh, the, it's a struggle out there, and as we grow older, we drift away from that, and we learn how to protect ourselves, but children uh, are defenseless, and if they are forced to be out on that playground, and they are too small, or they're inadequate in some ways, and they, they just can't uh, defend themselves, it can be a very miserable life. Now let's get to Lucy. Lucy has a, <laughs> <laughs> Lucy has a psychiatry booth. 
Yeah. W- were you ever in therapy, or do you have any faith <laughs> in therapy? I don't know enough about it to say I have faith or not. I, I went through a, a few sessions uh, over this anxiety business, but the psychiatric booth is really a takeoff a parody of the old lemonade stands that used to be in comic strips. Oh, yeah, well, sure. Yeah. When I was growing up, every comic strip character at some time or another ran a little lemonade stand. And so I was thinking about that one day, and I thought, well, nowadays it'd be much more practical to have a psychiatric booth, and that's how that all started. How did you come up with Linus's uh, security blanket? I would say out of the five children that we had, three of them had blankets. And uh, two of them carried the blankets around until they literally crumbled and disappeared. Little by little, chunks would fall off each day until finally there was nothing left. And that was the end of the blanket. And that's what gave me the idea for it. I was always glad that I was the first one who noticed it and used it because I know if I had not, that Mort Walker, uh, who was very bright, would have uh, latched onto the same idea. Now, your father and Charlie Brown's father uh, were both bob- barbers. Now, Charlie Brown has no hair. He has that one little lock that comes well, out. I, yeah, I don't think of it as not having hair. I think of it, of it as being hair that is so blonde that it, it just doesn't, uh, it's not seen very clearly, that's all. Oh, okay. I was wondering if your father always gave you uh, too close of a shave <laughs> when, <laughs> nope. when he cut your hair. No, but he uh, always gave me haircuts, and when I went to school, I was always uh, looking very nice. My hair was neatly combed, but the embarrassing thing about that was when I used to go into the shop, and he'd be working on me, and maybe he'd be halfway through my haircut, and a real good customer would come in, and he would say, "Uh, why don't you just sit over there and wait for a little bit, because I have to wait on this man. It was so embarrassing to sit on the bench with just a half a haircut. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, I think when you were 17 years old, you responded to um, an ad that said, do you like to draw? And, and you ended up taking a correspondence course through that a- ad? Yes, this is the one whose ads appear in magazines and matchbook covers. They usually, they used to have a profile of a, a girl's face. Yeah. Anyway, I took the course, and I was too embarrassed to go to a resident art school. And well, most, go ahead. What were you embarrassed about? Well, I didn't think I was good enough. Oh. I didn't want to sit in a class where everybody else was better than I was. Uh, I'm like Charlie Brown. I hate being defeated. So anyway, uh, I took the correspondence course, and it was a good course, and I learned a lot from it. And then after World War II, I used to take my drawings over there uh, because they were located in Minneapolis, and I would get uh, personal instruction. And they hired me as a part-time instructor that uh, summer, and I stayed on for five years, and it was while I was working there that I developed my own work. Did your parents know that you were taking this correspondence course, or did you really want to keep it a secret? Oh, no, they knew it. Uh, They were always puzzled by what they could do to help me. Uh, I've always been grateful that they never, in the slightest way, stood in my way for what I wanted to do, even though they couldn't quite understand it. There was no way they could comprehend that somebody wanted to be a cartoonist. I mean, it was just completely foreign to them. So... uh, this was just, um, I think they thought was a good way to help me. The, the course at that time, I think, cost $160, and I remember my dad even had a hard time keeping up with the $10 a month payments um, in those days, but he paid for them. What was the first um, strip that you did with, with a Charlie Brown or Charlie Brown kind of character in it? Did it start off as, as the strip that we know now, or was there a more... Um, uh, was there an earlier version of it? 
No, but the original submission to United Features was a panel rather than a strip, so there were no definite characters. And then when I went to New York to sign the contract, I took along a batch of about a half a dozen strips I had been working on just to show them what else I could do, and they said immediately that they would much rather have a strip than a panel because uh, a strip just is easier to sell, it's easier to market. So then they said, well, you'll have to create some definite characters. So I said, well, that's no problem, because I already knew I liked to draw a little dog, and I just went home and I asked my friend Charlie Brown if I could use his name, and uh, he said that was fine, and so I created Patty and Shermie, and those were the four lead characters. The first strip that ever appeared, I wish I had never drawn, it shows Shermie and Patty sitting on a curb, and they see Charlie Brown coming from a distance. And Shermie says, here comes Charlie Brown. Yes, sir, good old Charlie Brown. And as he walks by, he says, how I hate him. Uh, see, that, that shows what I was doing those days, which I would never do now. Well, why are you sorry that you drew that, though? Well, uh, I don't think he should have said something like uh, how I hate him. It's a little too strong. Nowadays, I think I would make it more mild. Now, I, I know that when you first submitted your um, your, your your comic to um, the the syndicate, that um, they ch- they changed the name. They want they just came up with the name of Peanuts, and you didn't like the name. Probably the worst title ever thought of for a comic strip. And uh, I always make sure that when I am interviewed that I say this because I like to get revenge. But it, it is totally inappropriate. It has nothing to do with what I am drawing. But I don't think the people at the syndicate, even though they were wonderful gentlemen, and I owe them a good deal because uh, we've become close friends, but I don't think they had any comprehension of what I was going to do. I think the difficulty of being a syndicate editor is that you have to realize the potential of this young person who is sitting across from you when you are looking at his or her work. Is this person a fanatic, or is he or she just somebody who's doing something for a lark? And they should have recognized immediately that here they had somebody who was a fanatic and somebody who was really dedicated. Um, They should have listened to me a little more carefully. Fortunately, titles of comic strips are not that important. Who knows that Popeye is really called Fimble Theater? It's, It's really not important. What's wrong with Peanuts? Peanuts, in the first place... Uh, is insignificant. It indicates something that is not very important. And also, it is not the name of the lead character, which is what I said would deceive people when the strip first began, and, and it certainly proved to be true. Uh, I, I just hate it when somebody says, oh, I, I liked what Peanuts and his dog did the other day. That drives me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> no. So what title did you want to give it? I think I would have liked to have called it Good Old Charlie Brown, But as the years have gone on, I realized that Snoopy would simply have been the best name because he has turned out to be the lead character. But we didn't know that, of course, at the time. Now, have you ever hired artists to draw for you like most um, people who do newspaper strips end up doing? I would quit before I do that. The only uh, way I suppose that it could happen would be if I had a temporary illness and I simply couldn't keep up the schedule. But even then, I think we would just drop the strip until I became well again. Before I had heart surgery, I worked very hard, and I got three months ahead on the strip because I didn't know how much time I would lose. As it turned out, I only lost a month. But I hope that no one else ever touches the strip because uh, the strip is me, and this doesn't mean that I'm critical of others who do have assistance. 
Uh, some of them certainly need them, but uh, no, I, I would never want anybody else to do it. And my children feel the same way, and they insisted in putting in our syndicate contract that uh, when I retire or die, the strip goes too, because they said, and I quote, we don't want anybody else drawing Dad's strip. Do you have any plans to retire? I don't know how to do anything else, and I don't want to play golf every day. So um, I suppose what I would like to stop is all of the nuisance things that happen, uh, all of the the continual stream of requests that come into the studio for uh, drawings and special appearances and things like that. Uh, I, somehow I've got to try to learn to cut all of that out, and I'm, I'm doing the best that I can. In fact, just the other night I said to my wife, Jeannie, look, I said no three times tonight. <laughs> uh, that's, that, was, <laughs> that was pretty good, I thought. It's hard for you to say no? Very hard. And uh, I despise autographing. Uh, I hate to say it, but I, I really despise autographing. But uh, it's bad enough, all the trouble, but then it's the guilt that is laid upon you because you've turned somebody down for, for autographs. But I just can't stand it anymore. What's bad about autographing? Is it coming up with something to say or just the whole absurdity of it? Well, yeah, and my hands shake, and sometimes it's a nuisance. And who wants to autograph a gum wrapper? <laughs> or, or <laughs> I had a fella ask me for an autograph over in the parking lot the other day at the mall, and his car was still moving. And I, <laughs> he drove by me, and he says, hey, uh, aren't you Charles Schultz? I said, yeah. And he says, could I have your autograph? His car was still moving. I said, this is ridiculous. And I, I kept right on walking. <laughs> you said your handshakes. Is it embarrassing for you to autograph if your handshakes? Yeah, very embarrassing. Uh, sometimes I'd like to draw them a little snoopy, but my hand shakes, How and that is embarrassing. Does that get in the way of cartooning at home? Yeah, I have to. Uh, uh, it's not any worse than it used to be, but I kind of prop one hand against the other, and uh, I can't draw as fast as I used to. I used to be quite facile with the with the pen. I used to be quite proud of the pen line that I had, but I have to be more careful now. But I just draw a little more slowly, that's all. And I letter very slowly, but I still letter very well and very clearly, I think. Have you ever wanted to do a strip besides Peanuts? Or yes, uh, I never will. I've often thought that I would li have liked to have drawn a strip about real children, uh, with the cartooning not being as exaggerated as it is with mine, with the larger heads and the little tiny bodies. Uh, I, I think there is something uh, there. However, we are now caught in this terrible bind where we have such small space in which to work that it would be almost impossible to do something like that. Is it loyalty to Peanuts also that would hold you back from doing a different strip? Yeah, because I like what I have, and I think that every thought that comes to me can be used in the Peanuts strip in some way or another. I never think of something and say, well, gee, I wish I could use that, but it just won't work in my strip. I have a repertory group here that will accommodate anything that I can think of, whether it's something uh, fairly serious, you know, like certain scriptural references, something from the Old Testament, way on down to something really corny, and, uh, and then I'll give it to Snoopy, and he'll tell Woodstock something which is just absurd and corny, and they both laugh so hard they fall off the doghouse and land on their heads. <laughs> uh, you know, so those things are really fun, and that's what cartooning is all about. I think that cartoonists have to be very much aware of their medium because you cannot compete with live actors, television actors, movie actors, radio actors, uh, on their own ground. You have to remember that you can do things that they can't do. Cartoon characters can flip over and uh, d do things that live actors can't do, but they can do things that we can't do. So you always must be aware of your own medium.
Charles Schultz, it's been such a great pleasure to talk with you. I want to thank you very much for sharing some of your time with us. Oh, my pleasure, Terry. I appreciate it. My interview with Charles Schultz was recorded in 1990. He died at the age of 77 in 2000. Saturday marks the centennial of his birth. After we take a short break, our jazz critic Kevin Whitehead will talk about the music from the animated TV special A Charlie Brown Christmas by pianist and composer Vince Guaraldi. Also from our archive, we'll listen back to an interview with Chuck Jones, the animator and director who helped bring to life Looney Tunes stars Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. In 1965, San Francisco pianist Vince Guaraldi wrote and performed this music for the now classic soundtrack of A Charlie Brown Christmas. It's been a bestseller ever since. A new edition has been remastered and is being re-released with material from the original recording sessions. We're going to listen to our jazz critic Kevin Whitehead's 2012 review of a Vince Guaraldi Best Of album that included several tracks from A Charlie Brown Christmas. Kevin began with this recording, which became Guaraldi's first hit. must have been times in 1963 when Vince Guaraldi was riding high on his surprise hit Cast Your Fate to the Wind when he thought, this is what I'll be remembered for. Not that he'd have minded. He said taking requests for it was like signing the back of a check. The song's got a great hook tied to a poppy, uplifting chord sequence. He'd mostly be remembered for it, too, if soon after he hadn't written the music for a TV Christmas special that CBS didn't have much hope for. Now you know who I'm talking about. After December 9th, 1965, Vince Guaraldi wasn't the cast your fate to the wind guy. He was the peanuts guy. Even if Charlie Brown cartoons make you wince, you can hear the music's a perfect fit, as light as a kid's song. The breezy, syncopated bass pattern and sprightly chords of Guaraldi's Linus and Lucy evoke Schroeder pecking at his toy piano and that pirouetting Snoopy dog. The tune was maddeningly catchy in a good way. Giraldi would break away from the main theme just so he could bring it back. Guaraldi was fascinated by Boogie Woogie when he was young, and that rumbling left-hand bass part is Boogie modernized and streamlined. He wasn't a super virtuoso, but he was a great piano stylist who 
favored a pared-down singing line and loved to swing. His fingers were short, but they'd sprint up the keys. Giraldi would also slip up to the good notes from below, like another great mid-century piano stylist, Nashville's Floyd Kramer. Giraldi or Ahmed Jamal or Ramsey Lewis, the stuff that wears best is all about fetching rhythm and a bluesy economy. To my ears, Giraldi's slow tunes and bosses are not so compelling, but he could make a standard ballad snap to attention. Vince Giraldi had range and had an instrumental hit right when jazz was vanishing from AM radio. He didn't just play for peanuts. Whitehead is the author of the book Play the Way You Feel, The Essential Guide to Jazz Stories on Film. Coming up from our archive, Chuck Jones, the animator and director who helped bring to life such Looney Tune characters as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, and Elmer Fudd. Jones was the sole creator of Pepe Le Pew, Roadrunner, and Wile E. Coyote. This is fresh air. Although the Looney Tunes cartoons date back to the 1930s, They became so popular and remain so entertaining that the characters get revived every few years. Looney Tunes superstars Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck are revived in a new podcast called Bugs and Daffy's Thanksgiving Adventure. We're going to listen back to our 1989 interview with Chuck Jones, the great animator and director who helped bring to life Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, and Porky Pig. He directed them in some of their finest roles. Jones was the sole creator of Pepe Le Pew, Roadrunner, and Wile E. Coyote. Jones worked at Warner Brothers from 1933 until the studio closed its cartoon division in 1963. Then he formed his own production company and created primetime TV specials. Chuck Jones died in 2002. I spoke with him in 1989 after the publication of his autobiography, Chuck Amok. The title was borrowed from Duck Amok, Jones's cartoon about cartooning. In that cartoon, Daffy Duck finds himself at the mercy of a fickle cartoonist. Daffy opens the cartoon as a brave musketeer, but the cartoonist keeps changing the scenery on him to the most inappropriate settings, a farm, the Arctic, Hawaii. The cartoonist eventually erases not only the background, but Daffy himself. Would it be too much to ask if we could make up our minds? Hmm? Dashing through the snow, <laughs> through the fields we go, laughing all the way. Mm-hmm. 
Farewell to thee, farewell to thee. The wind will carry back our savvy friend. <laughs> One last embrace before we say, hmm. <laughs> Buster, it may come as a complete surprise to you to find that this is an animated cartoon. And that in animated cartoons, they have scenery. And in all the years I... All right, wise guy, where am I? Chuck Jones, welcome to Fresh Air. Um, you changed a lot of the characters who you worked with over the years. Uh-huh. And can you describe, when you first started directing Daffy Duck, who was always my favorite, um, when you started directing <laughs> Daffy Duck, what was he like? And then maybe you could tell us a little bit of the character changes that you brought to the Well, to Daffy. Um, it's a little difficult to, to isolate them exactly as to what I contributed, but I, uh, all the characters um, I felt were part of me, particularly Daffy and the Coyote, because um, they made the kind of mistakes that most of us make only multi- multiplied a bit. But Daffy is an interesting character, I think, because he, could ru- he, he would rush in and fear to tread at the same time. And he also could be fawning and overbearing at the same time. And I think that happens with very many of us when we, uh, sometimes in the reverse, when we go in to talk to the boss and ask for a raise, we, we're overbearing. When we get inside, we're fawning. But uh, but Daffy is both at the same time. At the beginning, he was just crazy, as was Bugs, even in the first great uh, the uh, Wild Hair that Tex Avery directed. The character was really kind of mad, more like Harpo Marx, perhaps. And uh, I was never comfortable with a character unless I could understand him, and I can't understand crazy people. So I, I always try to sort of pasteurize my characters to find out what, what, what they, who they are. The who is, who is the whole point about character animation is not what. It isn't what a character looks like or indeed how it's drawn. Um, you sound like a method animator. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess so. I, uh, I, I don't think that I could do it unless I, unless I cared about the characters. Um, in, in, in your cartoon, Duck Amok, why did you choose Daffy Duck as the character that was going to be at the whim of the cartoonist? Well, I uh, I tried it later with Bugs Bunny and it didn't work. Fortunately, I did Duck Amok first, then I did one called Rabbit Rampage. And he also had the same problem, and he's, you know, the person in this case turned out to be Elmer Fudd that was moving him around. But, but it didn't work because that's not the kind of person that, uh, that Bugs is. Bugs is a comic hero, you see, as compared with a comic wimp, which would go back to all the great cart- the great uh, comedians, starting with Chaplin and Buster Keaton and all the rest of them. They were, uh, they're all kind of semi-losers, aren't they? They're more like us. And uh, But I always liked Daffy because he would continue beyond where I would stop simply because I'd be afraid of what, uh, what the community would think of me. Daffy continues, so... Uh, but, but when I was working with him, all I had to do was reach down inside of me and bring the daffy up to the surface and spread it out and take a look at it and see what would I do if I were if I had Daffy Duck's courage. Mm-hmm. Um, you told us a little bit about how you changed Daffy Duck and how you drew him a little differently, different characteristics you gave him. What about Bu- Bu- Bugs Bunny? What are some of the changes you brought to Bugs's life? Well, I think that they, well, one of the nice things about there were three units there. After 1946, uh, Bob, in fact, all the films that Warner now owns were directed by Fritz Freeling or Bob McKimson or me. Bob Clamp had left in 46 and Tex in around 44. And uh, so we we had these wonderful sessions. When I, when I would get an idea for a film or my writer and I would get an idea for a film, we'd call in the other directors and writers 
and we'd sit down and have this session, which we called a yes session, which meant for two hours nobody could say anything negative. If you couldn't contribute to the idea, your job was to shut up. But usually uh, the ideas were pretty good when they came in. The result of this was that uh, we were all involved with each other's picture, although each director had absolute control of what went into his own pictures. But there was no uh, internecine warfare. We, we liked each other, we wanted each other to succeed. But if I gave a great gag to Fritz Freeling and he used it, uh, and, then, and it appeared on the screen and got an enormous laugh, I, naturally I wanted to go out and throw up, but I, uh, uh, because that's human nature, that's Daffy Duck in me. When you did your recording sessions, the voice sessions with Mel Blanc, mm-hmm. what kind of suggestions would you make to him about the characteristics that he should try to be getting at, at through his voice? Well, for one thing, I, I would have a, I'd have, have completely laid out the picture, all the key drawings that I would be giving to the animators had already been done. And I would all, already have finished the exact dialogue. Mel never sat in on story, story things or anything like that. And in no way could we let any actor, Mel or anybody else, uh, ad-lib because because uh, we had to make pictures exactly to six minutes. So the dialogue was all carefully planned to, to fit into an exact six-minute format. So uh, when, I, when I was ready for, for the actor, usually Mel, about an hour before we were to record, I'd call him in. The marvel of Mel was that he was such a brilliant actor that he could get an, immediately get the idea of what you were talking about. All the great characters of the Warner Brothers cartoons are all animals. They're, they're, they're animals with the traits of people, but, but they're not people. They're, they're, they're ducks and rabbits and skunks. Um, what are some of the advantages of using animals instead of people for the cartoons? Well, we had ample um, precedents to go on. I mean, going back to Aesop's Fables and Kipling and even Mark Twain did several things about animals and, of course, Beatrix Potter and... Uh, so many others, uh, but the the main thing is that it's uh, that it's easier to humanize animals than it is to humanize humans, and it's, it's as you know from seeing uh, Snow White and and the Poor Princes and all the Disney films that it's very difficult to animate human beings, and when we did animate them, they didn't look very much like human beings. I mean, Elmer Fudd doesn't look as any more like a human being than Bugs Bunny looks like a rabbit. Uh, Bugs is obviously not a rabbit. Rabbits look more like. And the average rabbit looks very much more like a pillow than anything else. However, I think that taking a rabbit and making him as heroic as Bugs Bunny is a lot more easy than it is to take a human being and make him like Bugs, uh, with Bugs' characteristics. You always believe that in a cartoon world that you have to create certain rules of the universe and the characters always have to live within those rules. Um, give us an example through, say, the Roadrunner, Wile E. Coyote Cartoons, because you you created those characters. Yes. What what's tell us a little bit about the universe that you created them in? Well, there are several things that happen when in in all comedy. Um, the more you channelize, the more you narrow the, the uh, your character down, the better it gets. The for some reason, uh, take Charlie Chaplin when he once got that little costume. Look how much he was restricted in what he could do. He could only be the little tramp. But he could be the little tramp, and 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 and, and uh, he also limited the little tramp in pretty much into, into living in a city. Well, the, we felt that when we when we got the Roadrunner and Coyote to going, uh, the, it was evident that they both lived in the southwestern American desert, and uh, so so you immediately say to yourself, they, that's where they live, that's where they got to live, and the the fact that the Roadrunner is a roadrunner means that he should stay on the road. 
and there were a number of other rules about that, that the roadrunner can never harm the coyote. The coyote can only harm himself uh, by buying those unfortunate things he gets from the Acme Corporation, uh, so on. So that's what we, uh, the, and, the, and, and the more rules you apply, and you never hear any other sound except the beep beep. And, uh, and I found that with going back then to Bugs Bunny. Bugs Bunny is such a powerful character, and he's a comic hero rather than a loser. He's such a powerful character that he could become a terrible bully. Uh, so we always started Bugs. In every picture, we started him in a natural rabbit environment, minding his own business, a quiet living rabbit, something like Rex Harrison, perhaps, before, before he got in, involved with my fair lady, <laughs> ladies. Um, and then someone comes along and tries to deprive him of his foot or his life or he's you know or sending him off on a rocket or something and then then he has to fight back you see and what once engaged in the in the in the war uh then he's happily engaged but without that he would just be a bully and there were some characters like heckle and jackal and even woody even woodpecker woody woodpecker at some time uh seemed to go out and just heckle people for no particular reason bugs never did that and this is vital and necessary if you wanted the character to be believable and for people to care about him we're listening back to my 1989 interview with cartoon animator and director Chuck Jones. We'll hear more of the interview after a break. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my 1989 interview with cartoon animator and director Chuck Jones. He helped create such Looney Tunes superstars as Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, and Elmer Fudd. He was the sole creator of Pepe Le Pew, Roadrunner, and Wile E. Coyote. One of the characters you created was Pepe Le Pew, this, huh? uh, this skunk who thinks he's very debonair and quite irresistible, but he's really quite repulsive. <laughs> he has no idea. Um, and he has this great uh, fractured French huh? that he speaks. As a matter of fact, let me just play a little excerpt of, uh, of Pepe Le Pew, and this is from a cartoon that you won an Academy Award for, Sentimental Reasons. Huh? Ah... The petite femme skunk. The rendezvous, no? <laughs> ah, my darling, how beautiful you are. How lonesome it has been that I have without you. Mm-hmm. Ah, the sweet nothings. Ah, the sweet somethings. Ah, the tender and rapture men. Mm-hmm. But I forget. But of course, the rendezvous. Why did Pepe Le Pew have to be a French skunk? Because it's funnier that way. Uh-huh. <laughs> a Bulgarian skunk probably wouldn't have been as interesting, or an Egyptian skunk. So uh, I don't know French. Uh, that the idea that French believe that they are the most desirable of all men. Uh, I don't. Know, that's still prevalent. But at that time, we thought of them that way. But I was a, a complete wimp in high school, and I was six feet one, weighed 132 pounds, so girls looked right through me and could see other men. So I suppose it was natural for me to find a compensate for that by making a character who, regardless of what he was, believed he was a, <clears throat> an absolute, uh, the most desirable of all people. Did, uh, <clears throat> did Marie Chevalier ever say anything about this character? <laughs> I don't really know whether he did or not. I, uh, I imitated him a couple of times. We had him sing a couple of songs the way Chevalier would have sung them. Uh-huh. We never yeah. ever imitated any character completely. Right. But uh, some sometimes we would infuse 
a little bit of a lot of characters like George Sanders uh, eating a chicken wing is very much like Bugs Bunny eating a carrot. Now, I grew up on the Warner Brothers cartoons, and the older I'd get, uh, the more jokes I'd get. But I never realized I was missing anything when I was young, you know, because I always, I always liked them. And now as an adult, I see things that I didn't see when I thought I was getting all the jokes when I was an older kid. Um, did anyone at Warner Brothers ever give you an argument that certain things there would go over the head of the, uh, the heads of the audience? Yeah. Yes, they did. But, but we didn't pay attention to them. Uh, we had we always had going battles on with our producers, so they 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 would issue edicts like, "Don't make any pictures about bullfights. Bullfights aren't funny." Well, that immediately we'd say, "Well, gee, obviously the guy has always been wrong." So we made a picture about a bullfight, and it turned out fine. Uh, no, we had very little uh, very little problem. Our fortunately, our producers were not very bright. Well, who did you have to answer to? Nobody, nobody, uh, well, because. Our pictures went out with the Warner Brothers features, and they were always played in, in theater theaters. And we really didn't know anything about how they were received until eventually we would get word from the exhibitor, who, after all, was the one who could judge his, his audience's response. So, no, we only made them for ourselves. We never made them for anybody else. We, we couldn't preview, and we weren't allowed to. There were no such things as these idiotic demographics and, and Nielsen ratings and stuff. And the first critic hadn't been born, so... So we just tried to amuse one another, and it seemed to work. I remember once seeing um, a short film that was uh, a combination of, uh, of uh, kind of pornographic cartoons that some of the Disney animators drew in their off hours. Yeah. And it ended up getting into circulation. Did you guys ever do anything like sure. that at Warner Brothers? Yeah. Yeah, everybody did. In fact, sometimes when in a Pepe Le Pew picture, I would, uh, I'd put a little salacious one frame, one twenty-fourth of a second, and I'd actually put it in the picture. And then I then I'd ask one of the ask the, uh, the the office manager to come in. I said, "There's a little glitch here. There's starting to hop at this point. I don't know what it. I can't figure out what it is." And then I'd bring it to a stop in the movieola, and you know that thing when you look through, and uh, there it would be. You know, well I knew nobody could ever see it because it was twenty fourth of a second, but then he would go into shock. You know, and we always had a frame to replace it just in case. But but I enjoyed doing that. It kind of put him in his place. So did he make you take that out, or did those those frames stay No, no, in? no. I, I told him it was too late. It would cost money to take it out, and nobody would ever see it. <laughs> but I, I, I had already inserted it. It didn't. It wasn't there anyway. <laughs> but I did it to, to, to see if I couldn't put him into, as, as we used to say, reduce him to moccasins. <laughs> <laughs> were, ever, uh, were any of your scenes or, 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 or any of your language ever censored? No. No, that, that, that was left to the brilliant people at the networks. And uh, they take out things that make the whole thing incomprehensible. Did that happen a lot, that you felt your cartoons were butchered when they got on TV? Oh, yes, they were, both at CBS and ABC, to name a few of the, uh, the guilty ones. Uh, what's curious to me is that they feel it was necessary to chew up those cartoons, but Nickelodeon, which is a, which is a program that's supposedly designed for children, sees no need to, to, to do that. Well, how, how did the networks... Uh, edit the cartoons? What, what kinds of material would they find offensive? Oh, practically everything. <laughs> I, you know, in, in, in the, in the uh, Bugs Bunny and, and uh, Rabbit Season, Duck Season things, they would take out every shot in which somebody, you know, those shots where Daffy's bill would be shot around. They'd show him getting ready to shoot, then they'd cut out the part of the shooting, and then they'd come back, and you'd, the poor child hadn't the remotest idea what happened. Because they thought that it was too violent? Yeah. Yeah. And what years are you talking but they, about? They, you couldn't even hit somebody with a pie, for God's sake. What, what years are you talking about that this kind of censorship Oh, it's, it's true now. You uh -huh. can still see the films that way. 
But w- when I was growing up in the 50s, I think no, they, they, weren't, they, they, were, they were on uh, fully. Anyway, yes, they were. They, they didn't do all that idiotic stuff. Listen, to me, a person who, who bears the title of program practices means censorship. And it are people that are too fat to, to run and, and too cowardly to fight. I'd imagine that the cartoons that, that had gotten the, the most objections because of the violence with the Roadrunner cartoons, since they're, they're all chase. Well, that's absurd, though, because the road, Roadrunner, uh, in, in the coyote, the Roadrunner never harmed the coyote. The coyote was only a victim of his own, own ineptitude. Mm-hmm. So the idea that, uh, that, uh, that there was any violence involved there is ridiculous. Did you ever think of yourself as um, doing a, a, a pop kind of surrealism? I did some, uh, they tell me, uh, but I never did anything, <laughs> you know, by sitting down and saying, I'm doing this for a reason. Right. What I was trying to do was to develop the characters that I understood and to have fun doing it. And that's what, that was the whole secret of Warner Brothers cartoons is a, a bunch of people happened to come together from varied walks of life, all of whom were enormously interested in, in, in making films that were fun to do. Well, I wish we had more time to talk. I to do talk. too. I really want to thank you a lot for talking with us. My interview with cartoon animator and director Chuck Jones was recorded in 1989. He died in 2002. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, our interview with singer, songwriter, and guitarist Brandi Carlisle. She's nominated for seven Grammys. Her latest album, In These Silent Days, grew out of her 2021 best-selling memoir. We'll hear about her life, her music, and her family. She lives with her wife, their children, and their extended family in a compound in Washington State. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our senior producer today is Roberta Shorrock. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. All of us at Fresh Air hope that you enjoy the rest of the holiday. And for those of you who had to work today, thanks for keeping things going, making it possible for others to take the day off. I'm Terry Gross. Mm-hmm.